Hello and welcome to Divided by Brand, the weekly podcast show for entrepreneurs, business owners and influencers. If you want to learn more about branding, hear from industry experts and first-hand accounts about ways that you might find yourself divided by your own business's brand, then this is the show for you. Join me, your host, Dan O'Cook, a brand identity specialist with over 20 years design experience and founder of Vi Design Co. I'm going to talk everything brand, but more specifically, I want to go behind the scenes of real life brand challenges that businesses and individuals have faced that has left them divided in their mind or divided by the people around them. I want you to learn with me exactly what real life brand divides people have faced and by overcoming them, did they help to create success? It's the show that's going to have a host of different branding stories. I'm going to be speaking with people on personal branding, corporate branding. I want to speak with artists and designers, even streamers. I want to put these guests in front of you and get them to open up about their own brand divides. And I think you'll agree, that's quite enough jazzy intro. Can we just start the show, please? Hello and welcome to this episode of Divided by Brand. My name's Dan O'Cock and here's what's coming up on today's show. In the Divided by Brand spotlight, I've got another guest. He is called Russell Novelty and he's based in LA. Now, Russell's a really special guest. He is a best-selling, a USA Today best-selling author. And he has had some profound success with a lot of the books that he's written. He's also had some that haven't quite gone as well as he would have hoped. So I'm hoping to get behind the skin of what's made some of them work as a launch, what's not made them work, and see if brand or branding has featured in any way, shape or form in any of those successes. So join me as I speak to Russell on this episode. Welcome to the show, Russell. I'm really glad that you could make it. It seems a long time ago that we had our intro call. I was getting a little bit mixed up with some of the guests. I was thinking when I saw um, the company name, I was like, I'm sure that's this guy. This, I'm sure that's this person. And then when I looked, it's like, oh, no, it's Russell. So then I had to go back through my notes, check what you did. And I was like, yeah, Russell, I remember Russell. It's, really, it's a really cool interview, this. I'm, I'm excited. So I've kind of recorded a little pre-intro that says and says what you are and who you you know what you're doing and stuff and um so here we are the start of the show thank you very much for joining me thank you for having me it's great to be here awesome well look the first question that i I generally like to start the ball rolling with is three wins a recap of let's say the last two weeks a, a couple of things that you've been busy with and have had some success with Sure. So I uh, first one would be that I, I I release most of my books on Kickstarter first, and so we uh, we had two 
two Kickstarters to fulfill because a lot of my books come pre-order from China or somewhere else. And so we do the Kickstarter, let's say in March, but the books don't come until June. So uh, last month we fulfilled both Kickstarters that we had uh, pending and we got all of the books out to people, which uh, was nice, uh, especially because having a little... little uh, trouble with our post here right now let's just put it that way Uh, so it was nice to see the books getting delivered Um, I am mainly a writer so I I I finished a novel two weeks ago and and then the third one is I just started my 20th novel uh, really 20th book because a lot of our books uh, my big series the God's Verse Chronicles a lot of the books are like multiple stories inside so my 20th book book uh i just started about a week and a half ago now the house out for three wins i mean come on <laughs> you fulfilled two kickstarters you started your 20th book i mean those in the, those in their own rights are just like major major accomplishments but you're kind of rattling these offers um you know yeah we just did this we did that and i think that people if they're tuning in and just starting on this particular episode um it's I always when somebody is such an expert in their field to be so nonchalant about accomplishments like that do you ever do you never stop and like take that step back and think whoa have I I have actually achieved yeah I I do so there's two sides of this right the first is that you can't be super excited about every big accomplishment. Like every time I do a book, I, I, I can't do that because like I've, I write a lot of books. I'm writing my fifth book this year and my 20th overall. So if I got excited over the, the same level of excited I was at book 20 as I was on book one, like I would be just excited like all day, every day and not be able to get anything <laughs> done. Um, uh, and I, I think you actualize to what your or maybe you're equal you you equal you have equilibrium with where you are in your career so like sure. uh it used to be that running a $25,000 kickstarter was like the thi- like more more uh more uh, like more than i'd ever raised our fifth campaign raised $27,000 and it was more than i had raised previously in all of my campaigns combined but then it sort of became most of my Kickstarters would be either 10,000 or at least 10,000 or over 25,000. That sort of became the expectation. And, and, uh, that was a lot to deal with. Like there was a lot of pressure on me to, to deliver like for years that, that, that would be the thing. And it wasn't until I could get over that it was okay if I didn't hit 25,000, but like I knew how to get to 25,000. I had sort of unlocked all of those keys that I was able to kind of settle down and things slowed down and I wasn't freaking out the whole time. So the other half of it is if I, if I, if I always was like understood the magnitude of the thing that I was trying to do, then uh, I would be paralyzed to even try it. And I, you know, but there's, but there's time when that was the 25,000 wasn't the normal for me or doing a $10,000 book launch wasn't the normal for me. Uh, but you know, over time you just sort of find equilibrium with the place you are. And that's sometimes bad because you sort of forget to 
appreciate the accomplishment, but it's also good. But but on the other side, it's good because it's it's no longer like this massive pressure or weight on you that like crushes you. Yeah, um, but I think you know it's really interesting just to hear you speak there of the of the accomplishments that you had made, and don't forget there are people out there that would be aspiring to you know do at least half a quarter of of what you've managed to achieve so for them to hear that you know it becomes the norm once you've hit that that first bar that's a really good thing to hear and i feel like we've dived straight into it and we've kind of not covered off some of the little bit of background story to yourself and I know we could spend a whole episode episode talking about what you've done. We, we did spend quite a bit of time on the intro call, but I think if anybody's listening, it'd be great for them to hear the, a, a bit around, have you always been an author? Was that always your dream? And how have you ended up where you are today, really? Sure. So I started, uh, I wanted to be an actor in high school. Uh, and then uh, I went to college and I wanted to be a director. And uh, then I wanted to be a cameraman and an editor. But I always kind of wanted to tell stories or be involved in stories. And I just, I didn't understand that you didn't follow that path. Like I just assumed like, you know, I wanted to be creative and no one ever told me not to do that thing. So I just kept doing it. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I started looking back and being like, oh, like all of you are lawyers or like IT techs or like some other thing that like is not being a writer. And I I just, I assumed that because so many people wanted to start that journey that they would sort of end that journey and that's where they would become. Um, but I, looking back, yeah, like 15 years later, almost 20 years later from high school, and I realized just how few people actually followed up or followed through on all of those things that we had dreamed when we were kids. So mm-hmm. uh, after school, I uh, I became a uh, camera operator on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., which is uh, the capital here. And I work yeah. on where Congress, Senate. Uh, White House uh, president stuff, like all sorts of that stuff. And then I left there and I created my first uh, my first couple of companies. One is a production studio and then one was a photography studio. And I would, you know, I went to Denmark on a movie. I, I shot... Uh, I, I shot like fashion photography and and just all sorts of like stuff. I just like general shooting stuff. And uh, then I directed a movie. I uh, that became a web series called Connections that you can watch on YouTube. And that's really when the writing bug hit me in 2006. Uh, really, I wrote my first thing because I just, I saw how bad everything else was that I was shooting. And I was like, well, I don't know if I can do great. I can at least do this. Like, I can at least do like this well. And yeah. uh, that's been a lot of my career of like, I didn't know if I could be a writer, but I was like, I could at least write this well. And I don't know, didn't know if I could be a publisher, but like I could at least miss deadlines like my publishers were missing deadlines. And so it's really organic. It went from that to writing a bunch of movies to moving to LA. My manager found me, uh, my, my manager introduced me to comics. And um, and then I started making comics and comics led to novels. And that led to my company, Wannabe Press. And, uh, you know, we started very small and then we started doing a bunch of shows all over the country. And those shows gave us the, the ability to um, to like, 
to, to, to launch bigger and bigger and bigger. And then I really broke through with a book called Monsters and Other Scary Shit uh, in, uh, in February of 2017. It was an anthology. And that was our first $25,000 campaign. That was the first time I was like, oh, like I might actually be able to do this like for a living. And we followed that up with a book called Pixie Dust, which also raised $25,000. And we followed that one up with a book called Cthulhu is Hard to Spell that raised almost $40,000. And after that, we were like, we had some stability. Like it wasn't, we weren't mm. a fluke anymore. We we like, we, we knew what we were doing. We launching on Kickstarter and then we started being better known at shows and on the convention circuit where I, before we had COVID, I did a lot of conventions and, and yeah, it, it's been a pretty organic growth for the last, for the last, um, like 10 years and 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 then we really focused on it really pushing it in 2015 when i went full-time the 2017 is when we really had uh, our breakthrough yeah and that's matching up with the notes that i kind of made from our intro call one of my notes um because i think it's a really interesting story and i love hearing how i mean i'm it's a business in my eyes it's how it progresses and how it grows your first book, Monster Hunter, I made a note here, and it's probably not strictly true, but I put next to it, Brand Failure, first book, Monster Hunter, um, $5,500 at launch. I don't know if Brand Failure was right, but I think when you were talking around it, you'd considered that a, you hadn't, hadn't performed as well as you would have wanted it to, right? Well, it was... It, th- that wasn't the brand failure. The brand failure came a couple of years later. So Ichabod Jones Monster Hunter was our first book we brought to Kickstarter. It raised $5,500. That one I was thrilled with. We followed that up with a book called Katrina is Hard to, is, is hard to Spell. Katrina Hates the Dead, uh, which was right. similarly post-apocalyptic, similarly comics. And that one raised $8,700. And that, like... That, that we were going in the right direction. Uh, mm-hmm. But then I got kind of cocky and was like, well, I could just release anything and like, it will be successful now. And I think everyone kind of gets that like cockiness thing where they're like, oh, well, like they'll just follow me anywhere. And it took me releasing a, a novel called My Father Didn't Kill Himself, which was a mystery novel to all them blog posts to realize that like, oh, like people aren't uh, just going to follow me anywhere because that book raised $3,500. So about uh, a little more than a third of what the Katrina book raised. And then I followed that up with a book called I Can't Stop Tooting a Love Story, which was like a picture book for kids. And that oh, one raised $2,200. And then I followed that up with a book called uh, Sorry for Existing, which raised $1,800. And so, yeah, it went from, you know, on the right path to really 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 on the wrong path but that brand failure uh led to a, our biggest success because after the first failure the monsters and other scary shit the way that publishing works is once you kind of set your slate for the year you're kind of stuck in that slate for the year because like you put a lot of marketing behind it you put a lot of and so uh and, and I didn't have anything else prepared. So I didn't, wasn't ready to release anything else. So I just kind of had to live through these like three horrible books, book launches, even though right. I knew in like January that it wasn't going to work out. And that's a really tough thing about publishing is like, if the books aren't ready, you just can't release them. And so um, I, uh, I, after that book, I said, well, there's two things that I wanna know. A, why did half the people 
uh, who 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 bought Katrina, not by my, uh, my father didn't kill himself. And then why did half the people who bought? And then the other thing was half the people who who bought my father didn't kill himself also bought Katrina. So I really wanted to be like, okay, this is a great case study because I can now talk to people who didn't buy my father didn't kill himself, and I can sort of analyze what I did, what I could do to get them back and back excited about the brand. And then mm-hmm. I can figure out like who the diehards are, the ones who really, really love the brand and what they and, and what they uh, what they were saying. And yeah, so I mean, it I sounds was, like you you went back to, uh, to further identify and clarify your niche, your avatar that, that had made that success very early on, right? Absolutely. And if you uh, if you were looking, if we were on video, you would see uh, a big painting of uh, my brand, Melissa, our mascot, Melissa the wannabe, who came from all of those conversations. And so the people that said they weren't interested in my father didn't kill himself also the same thing. They were like, well, we bought the first two books because they were monsters and they were action and they were comics. And uh, if you did that, we would buy again. And so I put into into production Monsters and Other Scary Shit, which ended up being our biggest hit at the time. And then, um, and then the people that like I was trying to get the attitude and like the the psychographic information on on all of the people who bought. And we were like, okay, like so people who buy tend to be like punk rock, like anti-authority, like Joan Jet types who would like yeah. sneak out to to like punk clubs uh, in high school and like like I did as well and like uh, you know we're in bands and like had tattoos and we're like creative and artistic and like no nonsense and and sarcastic and and like all of that sort of fed into the brand so we really we really focused on who the core customer was and got a profile mm-hmm. of them because that allowed us to to then make books and make novels and make other things and, and really like find the person who has the lowest acquisition cost and the highest lifetime customer value. But by interviewing the people who didn't buy, we were able to sort of see what the core competency of Wannabe Press was and what people expected from the brand and how to expand the brand into more and more and more people. Also, it seems that when you were describing the brand and you said that it was basically similar to yourself as an avatar, did it feel more satisfying and more, well, more satisfying on a personal level to just write for people like yourself? Yeah, the 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 difference is that the person, the people who bought my books were generally women, not men. Uh, so that was a big difference. Uh, but what's what was nice in that was that i had brand alignment so i was i was able to to ex, uh i was able to accentuate the parts of myself that like those people liked and sort of cut away the parts that were a little bit like um more uh more polished and really embody the kind of person that they expected me to be. And I was able to be more comfortable in my skin and more comfortable with what I wrote because I know that like that was what they were resonating with. Like they were resonating with like the most me part of myself. And instead of having to be this sort of bland cheddar, like nothing person, I could really focus on, on, on like becoming the best me that I can be and exemplifying the best version of myself. And then by exemplifying the best version of myself, I feel like I then stepped into that version over time 
and I've been able to just cut and cut and cut all the parts of myself that, like, I don't really like away or that that don't serve me away, and 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 double down or quadruple down on those parts that serve me well. No, it sounds it sounds well. I always find it intriguing, but when somebody does find a niche like that, the the rewards. They, they often think to themselves, why didn't I do this sooner? Or it's definitely a, um, like an aha moment. I'm intrigued to know what kind of, um, what kind of, not necessarily exercises, but what practices did you go through? Did you, to, to identify this niche, did you do it all yourself? Did you have um, friends or family around that guided you? Or did you work with a professional on any of this stuff? I mostly so I have been obsessed about marketing since about 2014 when I got so how Kickstarter works is you like after the campaign you can just see all of the emails of the people that bought from you and like get them and like ask them if they want to join your mailing list and so I had like a list of 150 buyers who had bought my work and after the next campaign I had about 450 people like on this little list and I was like kind of was like wow that's that's like 150 people who bought from me. And yeah. I started to read all sorts of books and I started to like listen to as many podcasts as I could about like marketing and 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 what's interesting about publishing is like no one actually uses like best practice marketing techniques. So I was able to with very little effort, like get a lot of gain from just implementing these sort of like sending a weekly email and like mm. showing up on social media and like going live when that was possible and just doing all of these things that like nobody else was doing. And, uh, and I don't think that I did a great job at the beginning, but just the fact that like I was doing it when other people were not was like allowed me to just get so much further ahead than anyone else that was in the same niche as me. But yeah, I, 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 I so I did it mostly myself and I did it mostly organically and I did it mostly wrong. So I would, I probably could have saved myself a lot of heartache if I hired someone like myself or, or a marketing expert to, uh, to, to help me. But it did end up being a, a long, maybe like two year process before we finally figured it all out. And we, we got the avatar and then we, we, we turned that into a mascot and just moving it along slowly and slowly and slowly at every iteration every four to six months like getting something else figured out uh, but by doing that organic growth like we had by the end of it i really knew who we were talking to like i really mm -hmm. knew who responded to our message and i really knew how to speak to them to get them to resonate with what we were doing yep and in that sentence in itself you've just summarized you know exactly what businesses should be doing with a service focused product or you know if you don't understand who you're talking to and why they should in your case engage with you and and read your books or with a, in a business term why they should take you or buy your product or engage with you for to buy a service then in short, you're probably going to fail, really, um, because you're going to come at it from a completely wrong angle. You're not going to talk to them in the right tone of voice. You know, the list goes on. Um, I've just, I mean, I've got some 
page, web pages up and the page I've got in front of me, Russell, is your personal website, russellnolte.com. I'm going to put links in the show notes for everybody to go check them out. And you've mentioned a couple of times this mascot and I can see it, I think, in the background on some of those shots. Is it the bee? With it's yes. kind of, yeah. So we've got that. It's like, that's like the start of brand identity, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think that the, the the first step was, I mean, the first step was obviously like talking to the people and like just talking to hundreds of people, but that the mascot really solidified who we were talking to because now every time I wrote an email, I could just look at that mascot. Like every time that I, that I like was, was trying to figure out like who we were we were talking to or whether someone was a good fit for our brand like literally they could just look at that mask and be like oh look i like that b i'm like then you'll like our books like it, it became this shorthand like i believe that the the thing that brands do wrong is they try to follow all of the other brands that are like them in the space without understanding that the mm-hmm. brand is the flag that you place like this is the flag that you're going to put up that's going to speak for you when nothing else when no one else can speak for you you know it's the it's the icon it's that moment it's the it's the mickey mouse that that is going to be like the thing that people talk about the thing that people point out and uh i think that when when people are thinking about their logo a they're thinking about it all wrong but they're also devaluing how important it is. Like it is the most important part of the the, the brand identity in my in 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 my opinion because yeah. you are going to like every single person who ever interacts with your brand is going to see the logo and it's going to be probably the first thing that they see as, as after they put in your web page. So it's really important that it speaks to the person that you want to attract to your brand. I've pulled up. We haven't quite covered off what wannabe press is. We've we've kind of discussed yourself, got the story and the the background, and we 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 know what you do, why you did it, and and the fact that you've written all these books. But what is wannabe press? Where did that actually come into it? What? How did that become? So um, wannabe press came from. I had a couple of books, including Ichabod Jones and a couple others that had publishers, and they just did a piss poor job of publishing my work like i don't them i don't i will not say whether they were good or bad publishers overall just like i was not happy that they would miss dates and like they would just put books on pod instead of like actually publishing them uh and and like like getting thousands of books they would just put it up on print on demand or something on like ingram and i was like i can do all of this stuff and i don't know if i can do a good job but like i know i can at least do a bad job and so uh, my first book ever was called The Wannabes. It was about fake superheroes that get real superpowers. It was roundly rejected from everywhere. So once I finished the uh, Kickstarter for Ichabod Jones Monster Hunter, I knew I was going to be self-publishing it because, um, you know, I had a publisher and I bought the rights back from to all of my work. And so I was going to throw everything through this publishing company. And so I needed a name. And I happened to have uh, the logo already designed for the wannabes. The the how comics works is there's a logo that goes on and becomes sort of the brand of the comic book. And so I had the logo with the name the wannabes on it. And I went to my I was like that's a 
pretty good name. Like it became sort of, it's sort of like a, a jab at all the people who said I would never make it in comics and that I was just like an outsider or a wannabe who like would never get a name. It also yeah. kind of speaks to like this desire, rebellious desire in all of us to like, that, to like fit in and like, and, 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 but also stand out. And so I was like, Hey, I went to my design, logo designer. So like, can you just make this wannabe instead of the wannabes? And like, that's what I'll use for my logo. And again, I was one of the people that didn't really think this through very much. I just like this part came, uh, naturally and, 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 and organically and it like worked. Um, yeah. so, uh, yeah, I, I had about $500 left over after I finished the 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 paying for the print run and it was just enough to make a company and that became i needed a little logo and it wasn't the b yet but the 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 w the wannabe w became sort of the 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 identifying logo of our company it wasn't until a year or so later that i was like this logo is kind of boring with just a w like i need something like i need something that like people can identify with and that's when the 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 b melissa the wannabe was invented I love it. And people can go and have a look on the website to see exactly what we're discussing. But um, the B, actually just describing it as a B doesn't do it justice because it's got attitude. It's got, you know, character about it and it all fits in with what we've just been discussing and how Noel has described his avatar. It's that... It's a rebel bee is probably the best. Wouldn't you say that was a fair summary? Yeah, I think so. I mean, and I think it really, not only does it define the brand, but it defines the look of all of the books we put out or a lot of the, most of the comic books we put out uh, fall under that that like B designs. So we Ichabod Jones Monster Hunter is like very cartoonish. Uh, uh, the So is Pixie Dust. So are... Um, so is Katrina Hates the Dead in some ways, and so are the Cthulhu and Monsters, other scary shit anthology covers. So it, it it defines not just the identity of people that like the work, but our biggest selling books are always our comics. And so it defines the brand of sort of like the style of the work. And it allows me to say, if you like that B, then you'll probably like our work because it's done in a very similar style. Yeah, and I, I can see a couple of the covers um, on the picture that's on your personal site. So, and I can't quite see all of them, but um, Ichabod Jones is kind of one that's intriguing me the most, as well as Katrina Hates the Dead. I, I love artwork, full stop, but the artwork on those two is like, oh, I'm intrigued by those. I'd pick them up just based on artwork alone. I'm also intrigued to ask, um, how do you approach the illustration side of comics? Because it fascinates me. Do you have to sit with that artist? Do you give them free reign or is, is it just a nightmare? Is it great fun? I, I don't know. Tell me a little bit about the actual artwork process side of things. Sure. So I come from movies and TV and there's a saying in movies and TV is like, once you've cast, you've, you're the director's work is 80% done. And so I believe that you should be looking for an outmoded amount of time for any collaborator that you're looking to hire. Um, and for any person you're looking to hire, uh, but especially artists. So um, I was 
I, I was quite lucky on my first couple, especially with Ichabod, because there were very few people who submitted to Ichabod, and uh, Renzo just happened to be the f- like one of these like ten people that submitted, and he drew a test page, and that test page blew me away. Um, and so, but I do think you need to spend a lot of time like figuring out the style. So there's a couple of things. First, like a cartoonish style is less expensive than a more realistic style because it takes less time to draw. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, doing color is more expensive than black and white. So there are all these concerns about like how you're going to draw the book and what style you're looking for. But then you definitely want to go out into the world and look at people's art styles and maybe get test pages from them and get samples of like things that they've done and make sure that they finished a book before. Um, but once I hire, I'm I'm kind of uh, strict or I, I kind of am, am much more, uh, I'm, I'm more strict in the first issue because I want to make sure that we really get the thing that we're going for. But I mean, I believe that I'm hiring an artist and they should have as much ownership, creative ownership, even if not financial ownership of the work as I do. So I have hired them for a reason. And I believe that like, maybe they don't make the decision that I would make, but it almost always is better or at least as good as what I imagined in my head. And our collaborator for um, uh, my collaborator for Ichabod Jones Monster Hunter, you know, we're now working on our 12th issue of comic book together. And, you know, so you develop a, a shorthand in that time about what is going like what you expect. And you also understand, or at least I understand that, like, I might say there's going to be six panels on a page, but there might actually be four or there may be eight, um, depending on what the artist conceptualizes for how to make that work. But yeah, I, I definitely believe that my job is to write a great story and their job is to draw a great story. And those two have intersecting not nodes, but they are very different skills. And so I try to make sure that, um, that they they are supported and that they have the ability to do their best work so my belief on all of creativity is that my job as a publisher uh as the person who's paying and editor whatever it is is my job is to is to take all of the other things away and allow them to just focus on the work and do their best work. That means, you know, they never have to worry about pay. They never have to ha- answer BS emails. They, 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 they get the best of me whenever they communicate with me and they don't have to worry about that it will sell or, or anything. Like, I want as much to be taken off of their plate as possible so they can focus on the work. And that also means you know, delivering a great script on time and, and, and like not something, and something that they want to work on because that's the other piece is, you know, so often writers like just hire an artist. And I don't believe that you should do that. Like, I feel like every piece that I work on, I am trying to hire an artist who will not just do justice to that piece, but will absolutely love to work on it as well. So, you know, we did a book called Pixie Dust. And uh, the reason I hired Nick Torres to do it is because I know he loves epic fantasy. Like I love his style, but like, I know he likes these big bombastic art pieces. And so when I wrote that piece for him, I, I knew 
actually like I had maybe a half dozen artists before that, but I knew that Nick could do the work and that he would love to do the work because it's his favorite genre. Epic fantasy is his favorite genre. Meanwhile, I work with an artist named Angela Odling on a book uh, that is releasing in a couple of years uh, called Lucifer Licorice. And she is much more into the small moments. So uh, when I wrote that book for with her, I knew that I would be doing a lot more dialogue based stuff. I knew it would be like a lot more sight gags and a lot, uh, not sight gags. And it would be a lot more like vocal gags, like, 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 um, written gags. And I knew that there would be, you know, 20, instead of one scene being two pages, one scene will be like 20 or 30 pages. So, uh, I had to sort of extend it out and become much better at doing the dialogue part that I, 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 that I, that in extended scenes that I don't normally do with other books. And then Ichabod is all about like these dark, these dark, like action moments. And like, and, and Renzo is perfect for that because he has this book called worm boy. And that's like, that's action, but like dark and like, and like funny and brute and like, it's just the perfect analog for something like Ichabod Jones, monster hunter. So I'm always looking whenever I do something for an anthology or I do something for uh, comics or do something for my own work or even when I'm doing editing my own anthologies I'm looking for people who can deliver on the concept what I'm thinking of and then I let them run free and and I've not always been like had success hiring somebody but I try to in a couple of pages, no, oh, this isn't going to work out. Let me just pay you your kill fee and then we'll like be done with it. Right. I like that kill fee. It's a new world to me. It's, it's really intriguing to hear, um, to hear your side of it. Um, as well as the comics, the design work that goes on with book covers is another side of, of kind of design that really intrigues me. And I'm, got your uh, Amazon page up again. I'm going to put a link in there for anyone that wants to go check out any of Russell's books, but some of the covers on there are really visually, like they're, they're intriguing and they're pretty special little pieces of design in their own right. Do you have a go-to book cover designer or do you, again, based on the the book itself, pick and choose? No, I mostly, aside from my cover for sorry for existing and a couple of properties maybe one or two other properties i use a uh, a designer uh who calls herself the creative paramita she is has this wonderful design aesthetic where she this photo manipulation aesthetic and i just fell in love with her work it's like a lot of other designers that i know but something wholly her own and and yeah i I, I was blown away the first time that I saw like her her site and the the, the way that she designed covers and uh, I just I kind of am upset I bought I don't know 30 or 40 covers from her over the years and uh, and yeah it's it is I, 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 I find them quite striking. The one I li- I like that I'm looking at here is called and Ruin followed behind her the God Serve Chronicles book five. Yeah, that was uh, so. What a cover! Yeah, it, it it's it's important with covers that you're not trying to to necessarily discuss what's inside of the book. Mm. 
you're discussing the feel of the book, the genre of the book, and the more emotional feeling. So while like it is actually pretty accurate to like, it's not a scene from the book that is on the cover, but like it's about this woman named Julia Freeman and she goes to hell three times over three different stories. And uh, and so that is the uh that is sort of the the feel that like i wanted to feel like fantasy i wanted to feel like uh like 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 fire and like and like this woman being consumed by fire and that's that's exactly the cover that we got and if you look at all five god's verse covers uh they've got got them up here yeah like like they, they they are very different like stories are very different but aesthetically the overall aesthetic is sort of what i was looking to have be brand consistent and so um when you're doing a series you want like the the logo is the same and in the same place at each time um, i'm but really also- pleased you mentioned consistency it's one of one of the um, top six points I generally say to people with any brand is consistency. Um, Absolutely. And every brand that I work on, I try to maintain consistency of style, aesthetic, logo. Um, the Gods vs. Chronicles, they're all so very, very different. Uh, one is set 10,000 years in the future. One is set uh, in the in the biblical apocalypse. One is, one is uh, set... Uh, in 3,000 years in the past. One is set in like the 70s to 90s. And so, uh, you know, the, the cover for And Doom Follow Behind Her, it feels much more futuristic and much more, um, much more uh, like sort of uh, uh, space fantasy, which is what it is, but it still falls in that sort of ideal of like there's a, there's a person in the middle of the, or there's an, there's a, there's a uh, there there's a a a a because not a person who's in the doomfall behind her but there's in three of the four covers you have sort of a humanoid odd person uh, yeah. in the middle of this sort of like kind of fiery or like red flamey kind of aesthetic explosiony type yeah burst i'd want to describe it as perhaps. right and so uh, and i didn't always have that you know the, the the gods verse chronicles went through many 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 covers and many 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 different iterations and a lot of them were done by different designers and and it was a nightmare it wasn't until i sort of had that brand consistency for this particular series that they started to sell a lot better for me because people could visualize that the characters sort of crossed over and that this was all one thing and once i once i convinced people or once i showed them through the brand that they are one thing people were willing to pick up multiple books and multiple series at once i love it i love it all i think i always it was always those books that grabbed my attention at um at school and i still remember I was quite big into the Games Workshop and um, fantasy figures, um, painting those, and the White Dwarf magazines that were out. The artwork that was in those magazines really inspired me from a very early age. And I do do my own artwork, but it's I just love the covers of the books that um, that you've done. And I know that's probably... As a, as a writer, probably much rather I said that I enjoy reading them, but I haven't I haven't read any of them, but they do look great. Um, 
what I want to do, Russell, is, you know, we, we've spent however long, I can't even look at the timer, but the, the, the writing side of things is, is one string to your bow. But I also wanted to give you a chance to have a little chat on this episode about some of the other projects. And I'm talking about um, really the complete creative because you, you realised, didn't you, that doing what you do this this avenue opened up to you because of the experiences that you'd been through could you explain what the complete creative is and what you had as an intention or have as an intention for that sure so the complete creative is sort of my my uh i'm going to use the word receptacle but i don't mean in like a trash way but it became my my avenue to 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 feed all of the knowledge that I had gained building this company. And so mm. it's about making the best work of your life and sharing it with the world. So it's it's a blog, it's a podcast called The Complete Creative, and it's many, many, many courses. I think we've got 10 or 20 courses on our site right now. But it's, uh, it's, it's sort of, I learn a bunch of information just running my company and then the complete creative is where I I do blog posts and I do my uh, podcast where I interview creators about how they built and sustain their careers, and I do uh, the free courses and the paid courses. But it is it, it is a hopefully a an a an overview and a deep dive into what it takes to lead a creative life. It's broken up into three sections: uh, breathe, which is sort of mindset. Um, create, which is about creating things, and then sell, which is about sales and marketing. And I try to do posts and such in each section frequently. I used to be much more interested in the sales and marketing side, but as I've aged, I've realized just how important the mindset part of it is, and that if you can't get your mindset right, you can't create anything and you can't sell anything either. So I really believe that it's those three pieces working together and in harmony that makes someone that makes someone be able to lead a complete creative life. I love it. And I think that what intrigues me most is that you had that that entrepreneur mindset. And I know that's a kind of word that people just go, oh God, entrepreneur, but the mindset, the business mindset, if you like to go, well, look, I've been through this. Let's try and help others with some of the pitfalls that I've come across. And the page that I'm on on your website, the complete creative with the courses, these are all really useful pieces of advice and ways to learn and advance. So we've got things like you've got your introduction, write a great novel, how to run a 5,000 plus email group viral builder, how to set up and run an awesome Kickstarter anthology, crush it on Kickstarter, how to become, it goes on and it's all really useful stuff that if anyone that's doing what you've done or thinking about doing it can engage with. And I'm guessing that feels quite rewarding in a way to be able to just spread this out and earn some money at the same time. It does, and actually my two most popular courses build a rapid fan base, which is about how to how to take any brand and go from one human to thousands of humans and thousands of people buying your work, and then how to uh, create Facebook ads. Uh, all of both of those aren't available right now. So uh, I, I pulled them back and we're gonna relaunch them later this year. Uh, and those are the two ones that really make up the bulk of my of, of my income. But yeah, it's it's 
it's quite rewarding to be able to to hear people and how they have advanced based on the work that I've done. And I am yeah. quite selfish in that I really just want people to make cool things. And I know in order to, so that I can buy them. Like I want to buy these cool things that you all are yeah. making. But I know that, you know, if you, if you don't, aren't able to sell or grow your audience, you're not, you're gonna lose heart and you're gonna lose like faith in mm. the work that you do. And so I wanna make sure that like not only and there's like millions of people that talk about, you know, how to write a great novel or how to create a great comic. And I feel like not that I don't have something to add to that space, but that space is so filled with other people that it was hard for me to it's hard for me to to like want to play in that space when so many other people are playing in it. So you'll see my write a great novel course is free uh, because mm. like I thought that. You know, it's it's a thing that I do. Like, I think that my novels are great, uh, and it's something that people ask me for. But I, I, I'm more interested in talking about how to take something when you've already made something that's great. So you can write a great novel, or you can create a great comic, or whatever it is. And like, how do you build an audience for that? How do you sell at conventions when conventions come back, or virtually? How do you like launch products successfully? Like, how do you actually build your, 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 your sales funnel? Like, how do you get a stable foundation that you can grow from? And it's not sexy work that I do. Like, uh, here's what I found. I, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. It's like the things that carry the longest are usually the fakest. They're the things that like hustle all the time and like never stop hustling is like a thing that like carries a lot. Like Gary Vee has millions of, 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 of followers like saying mm. the same message. Like yeah. it's not true. Like it's not true. Like and, like nobody that I know who like is really successful, like would give that advice as the advice that they give. Like the, the, the but it carries because it's like trite and easy to consume. Um, the, true things that matter are difficult and often boring and they don't carry very well. And so the work I made a decision a long time ago that I would focus on the work that actually matters, like the difference that I can actually make, uh, not the superfluous difference of the things that I could say to like make, maybe make people like, more uh, comfortable, but less prepared for the work that they have to do. The work is very hard, like very few people do it. Um, but the people that use the techniques that we talk about in the complete creative and the people who I bring onto the complete creative to talk are all experts in their field. They're all people who have grown their business and like they are all successful entrepreneurs and creative entrepreneurs and the advice they give is much different than I find on most other shows. And the reason being that, you know, it's very easy to give trite, like useless information. It's very hard to give, to give uh, like the real information. And especially because that real information, most people have no interest in like, in, 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 in engaging with. 
In fact, the, the ones that are the, the blog posts that I feel are the absolute best and the biggest uh, the, and, and will and will ignite the biggest change in people's lives are the ones that always every time have the least the least page reads every single time. I don't know why it is, but it's just the really important information is boring and hard. And I'm willing to because I run another company and like the complete creative is a side project, I'm able to do things and and say things and and focus on things that other people who's building this is their main thing aren't mm-hmm. able to and aren't willing to because like their engagement is drawn by writing sp- very specific articles. I love this. It's a really interesting angle. I've never... Well, it's kind of, it's kind of one of those things you think about and then consider. Well, certainly consider it, but then it kind of just disappears. But yeah, you're right that if it's if it's just a little sideline, you're more adventurous, don't you? Don't you feel that you're not as scared? Is probably the best way. Yeah, you know, any it? money that I make from the complete creative is like gravy. It's like it's it's like it's extra that I am yeah. able to funnel back into wannabe press and and in my books. Yeah, so I'm like I'm not focused on you know what thing is going to win the internet. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm very interested in the thing that is like the most helpful, uh, which usually means that it's the hardest to actually implement but will bring bring the the biggest return i think that's something that a lot of my work on the complete creative is about it's like look you're not you're probably not going to implement anything you find in the complete creative tomorrow and like have it work magically like there are there are other sites that you can find like a magic key that will move you forward today but like it won't work in three months yeah. Whereas like the keys that I'm, I'm I'm interested in unlocking are the ones that if you follow this very like banal path, maybe, or the, 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 like this this path that thousands, tens of thousands of companies have, 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 have used in the past to like build success. These are the keys that you unlock after you, you fight the dragon. So there's this yeah. great parable about this, this, this knight. And he's like a brand new knight, and he's, he's he walks into this walks into this uh, ca- this uh, dungeon, and he looks up, and there's a there's a there's a door, and he's like he's got to get to this door to like get everything that he wants in the universe, get the girl, get the get all these things. But along the way are all of these impediments. There are traps, and there are monsters, and there's a dragon at the very end, and he's. It's like, how am I ever going to get there? But he takes the first step and he finds like a, a better shield and like he finds another piece of armor and eventually he gets over the trap and he fights a, a monster and finds a better sword. And suddenly he if eventually he kills that dragon and he steps up at that last path and he's now like next to the door and the dragon dropped a key and the guy just turns it and unlocks it and it easily walks through the door. And he's like, wow, that was easy. But... 
that's only because he's not the person that he was when he walked into that dungeon. He had to go through all of these trials and tribulations to get to the person who can easily open that door, who can easily run the $25,000 campaign, who can easily sell at conventions, who can easily launch products, who can easily build their audience. All of whatever those impediments are, like by the time you walk up to the top and you get to that door, you'll easily be able to open it. But that's only because of all of the trials you passed along the way. And my goal is to prepare you for those trials, not give you a trite piece of information that you will be able to, that will be easily consumed, easily implemented and easily lost. I love it. I mean, it's the hero's journey, right? Absolutely. I love it. I love it. So listen, if anything that Russell's been describing and you're interested enough to go check out The Complete Creative, I suggest that you do because it's just a really simple site that you can go in and see what Russell's put together in terms of advice. It's it's really, really um, useful and interesting as well, actually. So the questions, there's a couple of questions that kind of, I want to kind of draw things to a close, Russell, because... I'm looking here. I've done 55 minutes. That's pretty good going. I'm, I'm enjoying the conversation, but I like to in, I like to include a, a little set of questions for every guest. So, the first question that I have is: If you met yourself 10 years ago, hi Russ, 10 years ago in a bar, whatever, or in a comic con or whatever, what would you say to yourself 10 years back? So 10 years back, I would have been in 27. I would say. I know you hate yourself now, and I know you're scared, and I know most of that hatred comes from fear, but eventually you will hate yourself a little bit less as long as you keep trying to do work that matters. Boom, and then you vanish in a cloud of smoke or something like that. I like that. Really, really um, good. Out of interest, where would you have been 10 years ago if you had bumped into yourself? I would have just moved to LA. Uh-huh. Uh, I would have just married my wife. I would have, so that would have been 2010. Right now, I will have. I would have just been back from Comic-Con, my first Comic-Con, and I would have been roundly rejected, and I would be just about thinking about Ichabod Jones' Monster Hunter. And uh, that book has kind of defined my life for the last 10 years. So wow. I didn't know wow. it at the time. Like I had no, no idea. No. I thought like one thing that I think people don't think about is the work that they do, even though it only takes a day or a year or a month or what, however long it takes, if you do it well and like it resonates, you can be talking about it decades in the future. Like we're still talking about things like 1984 and uh, and and and, mm-hmm. and and a Brave New World and and uh, and uh, and Handmaid's Tale. Like decades afterwards, and they're still being found by people. And uh, I think that it's it's nice that when we're doing the work, we don't think about that piece, but. Uh, it is like I had no idea that a decade on from working uh, on Ichabod, people would still be buying it and talking about it and thinking about it and and coming to me with questions about it. So those things are very gratifying to me now that uh, they probably would not have been. It would not have. I would not have believed myself had I told yeah. uh, ten years ago that I would still be working on Ichabod. I love it. I love it. So another question is. Would um, would you be able to pinpoint what I would class as your biggest brand dividing moment 
Absolutely. So in other words, yeah, what, tell me them. February 15th, 2017. It was the go. day after I launched uh, Monsters and Other Scary Shit. We launched on um, we launched on February 14th, Valentine's Day, with the motto, uh, screw, we didn't use screw, we used the F word, screw, uh, screw love, monsters are better. And uh, <laughs> it was the first day we raised something like $6,000 on Kickstarter. And the literal next morning I woke up and I was like, my life's about to change. Like it's going to change. Like everything is different now. And sure enough, like literally everything was different after that project and after that day. Wow. And that, yeah, I love it. So some guests can pinpoint particular little, you know, particular points in time like that. Some are not able to, or maybe they've not had that moment yet, but I find it really interesting when someone goes, yep, that was the day when it, when it was that brand dividing moment, as I would say. So I, I, I like that. I like the fact that I, I just like it when someone can answer it with a spit. I mean, no one specifically said a certain date, but the fact that you have, I think is awesome. So the last question, um, actually, before we, we hit record, so I'd like to make sure is we have a boldest brand of each episode that I ask my guests to choose. Have you got your boldest brand for this episode, Russell? I do. Uh, so I will pick my uh, the marketing guru who I resonate the most with. Um, most people look at me cockeyed when I say that I love Seth Godin and like I think he is the the best marketing person that you could actually follow because his advice he's gotten to the place in his life where he doesn't actually have to give like any advice that he doesn't think is worthwhile. I don't know how much I loved his stuff in the early 2000s, but today he's, you know, in his 50s, getting on 60, and he has this daily blog that just like has these little nuggets of wisdom that, you know, he doesn't have to make any more money in his life. He's not beholden to anybody. Uh, he just can, 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 can give the thing in its purest form and if there's someone that i would love to emulate in my career in that side of my career it's seth because he's been a book packager he he uh he he's created some of the most well-known marketing books in the world and like he's he's always done it in a way that is antithetical to every other marketer that's out there and by running counter cyclically he's been able to build this life and career and give advice that is actually um quite deep and and not just as a marketing because so often marketing people they, they don't give advice that like is relevant to life they just give advice mm -hmm. that is relevant to marketing uh and i think seth gives both marketing advice and life advice I, I'm, I'm obsessed with his 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 uh his um his podcast the kimbo which i think is one of if not the best podcast that exists uh and so yeah i would say that uh that uh that seth godin would be my boldest brand i'm definitely going to go check out some of seth's um content because the person that you're describing is the kind of person that i would certainly like to listen to or read more um content from because you can always tell when somebody is being genuine and if seth is the type of person who i would describe as being happy in their own skin they're not trying to achieve anything specific 
by what they're delivering, then that just makes it it makes it more relaxing to listen to as well as um, sounds educational in his sense. But it just makes it a more pleasurable experience to engage with with uh, with that brand, I guess. Yeah, he's agree? a very pleasant human to listen to. Uh, like he just has a very soothing like way about him. I uh, but yeah, I think. I think it's from just the fact that he's been at the top of this marketing game for decades now, since the 90s. Uh, you know, he worked for, for Yahoo and all of these places. But like now, now he's at the end, you know, he's at the end game. And he's, I, I think it changed sort of something about him in the early, you know, in the last 10 years uh, that allowed him to be more comfortable and it's sort of like how the complete creative is just like this is me being comfortable in my skin and like mm -hmm. giving advice and like you don't have to take it he talks very openly but he's like nothing i've ever written has won the internet but like what matters is like the people that matter read it and like it and they're engaged with it and i know that it makes a difference and i i i I don't know if it's the best advice for like growing a seven or eight figure company, but for me, who's trying to have a successful lifestyle brand and just like do what John Lennon says and, you know, be happy and, uh, and, 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 and understand that that is more important to life than, you know, making money. I think that it's that, that, that it's the, the kind of advice that I hope to follow. But again, it's not the advice that you're going to, like be able to unlock the next phase of your company tomorrow. It's the kind yeah. of work that you'll be able to like be able to, 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 to ingest and work for you for the next 20 years, which is, those are the people that I'm looking to learn from him and Brian Koppelman and a couple of others who, you know, have, have gotten to a place where like money no longer matters and they don't have to worry about, you know, having the, the the blog post that goes viral, they just can do the work that really matters in a way that matters to them. Um, those who I'm interested in talking to, and that's who I hope to be someone who can, that, that's someone who I hope that I can be uh, every day. Yeah. I get that. I get it. So Seth Godin, man of the moment, boldest brand of this episode. I think that's a great choice. I will be going to check out some of Seth's stuff. Um, We'll put a link as well to probably Seth's site, which will no doubt have his podcast and other content on. So I'm gonna I'm gonna draw things to a close, Russell, because I know that we could well I could easily talk for at least another hour. The comic stuff and the all of the book stuff really does intrigue me. I hope that anyone that's listened has um, gained as much of a an insight into what you do and what you've done and how that kind of, how brand influences what um, decisions you made along the way. And, you know, really, I've just found it quite an interesting, well, very interesting um, interview. So I just want to, I really just want to summarize by saying thank you very much for coming on, Russell. Thanks so much for having me. No problem at all. So here we are, the end of another episode. If you want to read more about my own work 
or my business, or if you feel like applying to be a guest on the show, which I am looking for new guests. If you feel like anything on the show has resonated with you on any level, please get in touch. You can do all of this via my website, which is danielocock.com. You'll be able to listen to more episodes on there. You can see some of my designs, some of my illustration work as well. You'll also find all my social media channels. So I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, and there is some stuff on Instagram. You'll be able to engage with me directly on there. The podcast itself is available to download via most of the major platforms out there. So think in Spotify, iTunes, things like that. If you like the show, then please don't forget to hit share. And it'd be great to read a review or two from yourselves. Um, Just tell me what you think about the show. I will read some of those out at the end of each episode. And I'd like to give some special mentions and thanks to anyone who does take the time to write one. And on that note, I just want to say thank you for listening to this episode. And remember, if you're not proud of your brand, how do you expect anyone else to be?